Proverbs chapter three, if you have your Bible, you wanna get there and just kinda hang out there. It'll be a few minutes before we uh, start unpacking a few paragraphs in, in that chapter. In, uh, in the last six weeks in our study, in a mini study of Proverbs, we've dealt with some very practical, practical things for the church, haven't we? We've talked about wisdom, um, that God calls us to love wisdom, to want wisdom, to do whatever it takes to get wisdom. We've, we've taken a look at uh, anger and lust and the, the words, they have the power of death and life, and today we add one more. I think it's very poignant for our culture, for our day, and it is the subject of fear. What does God have to say about fear? Uh, the dictionary defines it this way, uh, not that you don't know what fear means, but just for kicks, let's look at it. It says, a distressing emotion aroused by impendent danger, evil, pain, whether it's a threat is real or imagined. Fear. Fear's everywhere. So, so let me ask you a question before we kick off. Just, just humor me. Do this. What are you afraid of? Think about it. What scares you? There's a thousand people in here. If you've just in a quick couple seconds sorted through a few things, we've got several thousand fears represented in this room at, at this minute, if not even more. People are afraid. Let me give us a statement. At least it's... it's it's my thought about fear. You can boil all the things you're afraid of and, and all the reasons why. Let me give you a statement. I, I think fear comes from the possibility of losing the dream. And you get to decide whatever that is, like the dream is. We're afraid if something happens to the dream. If the dream is a perfect family, a healthy family, well, if something happens to the family, I'm afraid of that. If losing the dream means losing the health that I experience in my body, well, that's a problem. If, if my life is cut short, I'm worried about death, that's an issue. What if something happens to my income, my money, my way of life, my lifestyle? Some of us are afraid of what happens to our country, what happens to peace. Some people are afraid of, of the perfect school or education being lost or the best job being lost or if we lose power or control or influence, maybe we're afraid of not being happy or not being liked. Maybe we're afraid of, of leaders who, who uh, don't deliver, who fail us. I mean, there's a thousand. Just whatever your dream is, whatever it is you've got to have, our fears are directly connected if those don't go my way. Make sense? So you get to decide. And that's why it can be a huge variety to what creates that fear. I believe, um, and this is no exaggeration, that fear has, has grown to the acute stage in our world. I mean, the effect it's having on our lives is profound at this point. I think uh, so much so that we're having a hard time doing what the Bible says we're supposed to do. So when it says believe the best about one another, not, not today. And we're willing to disobey God because we're afraid. When the scriptures tell us to honor authority, no, not when my dream has been squashed by that authority. When the scriptures tell us to walk in joy, I'm afraid. Or when it says to love everyone, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, not really, not today, because I'm afraid, okay? Fear. Time Magazine, a year ago now, I'm certain if they redid this article, they would add some things to it. But a year ago, they wrote an article entitled, Why Americans Are More Afraid Than They Used To Be. And they put some thoughts down, which I think are sort of true. Um, they said that fear has become somewhat fashionable these days, so much so that people tend to exaggerate fear. I think that's a possibility. 
I think it's, it's seen out there. They also said this. They mentioned that a measurable loss of faith in the government's ability to protect us has created a fear. That there is this uh, proliferation of politics of fear, and not just referring to politics as, as it were, but just the system of fear. Fear markets well. Companies market fear. Media markets fear, right? And they mentioned technology helping our fear. Um, how ironic is that? 24-7, every minute of every day, you have these issues that you should be afraid of right in your face. And isn't it convenient? It pops up on your little app. Constant fear. Not that I read this magazine very often, but the Rolling Stone magazine said that we're living in the, the most fear-mongering um, time in human history. And then they concluded this, because fear is worth billions. I think there's truth in all those statements, but, but obviously we're not here to see what Rolling Stone has to say about the topic of fear. We gotta go deeper. Ultimately, why do we, why do we fear? L let's back up and look at the world before we dig into the hearts of people who confess Christ. The world is afraid. Obviously, the, the only way to interpret the craziness you see is people's response to the dream being lost for them. But I would just state the obvious. The world is afraid because it only has fear to respond to the things it experiences. It doesn't have another option. So um, they fear sickness because in their mind, there's no God of healing. There's no God of eternity. So sickness is a really bad thing and it's in the way. They fear loneliness because there's no God of relationship. If, I don't, if I'm alone, I got nothing. They fear not being liked or loved. They have no concept of God loving them more than they could possibly fathom. They fear losing control because they don't believe, don't believe in a God who's sovereign over all things. So they have to maintain control. They fear questions they can't answer because there's no omniscient God who knows all things. You get the point? You take God out of the equation, the only thing left you have is fear to what's going on. Now, it's easy to point fun at people who don't understand what we confess to be true, but the church struggles with fear. This room struggles with fear, and you know it's true, and, and I would just suggest it's kind of a subconscious thing. It doesn't come out in tangible thought. It just happens, but I think if the church is going to get convicted, it needs to deal with a couple of struggles it has with the theology of God when it comes to these issues of fear, and I would say it this way. A wrong view of God creates fear, and it just happens. So, for instance, I'll give you two, two illustrations. Your God, you don't think this through, but your God is well-intentioned. He's just not powerful enough for your problems. Nobody thinks that through. But the only possible conclusion of a circumstance you're going through that creates a mass amount of fear is to doubt whether he could deliver or that he knows what he's doing. You're left with just a God who's just a really nice guy but can't pull the strings. Yeah, I, th we're coming onto the holiday season. One of my favorite holiday movies of all time is It's a Wonderful Life. Anybody seen that movie? Okay, if you haven't, I command thee, watch the movie. Because these illustrations don't work unless you know who I'm talking about. In the movie, there's a character named Uncle Billy. Uncle Billy is just an absent-minded uncle trying to run the savings and loan. And the only way he can do his job is if he ties string around his finger to remember his commitments. Some people think of God like that. Man, he's a great guy but he has to tie a string around his fingers to remember what he promised. He won't remember. Who am I? So some of us think he's, he's really good, just can't deliver, and then some of us think the opposite. They think he can deliver, but he's not necessarily that good. 
Like, like he, he could do whatever he wants, but, but I've, I deal with fear because I know God wants to crush me. I've talked to some of you. You walk around looking through the lens of your life and your failure, acting as if God was like you and he would treat you like you would. I'm, I'm afraid because there's no way. God, God, God could do anything for me, but he probably won't. There's no way he would love someone like me. After what I've done, after who I am, all those things, God spends time with those people, not with these people. And I, I know we never verbalize these things. You just walk around scared that somehow God's intentions are bad for you. And that also is a theological error. Why do we fear? Because we have a wrong view of faith. The Bible's pretty clear in what it says that we do and live in in our confessions of Christ. And it says in the scope of God's sovereignty that, that a part of our growth and our faith is things like suffering and discipline. And yet we never signed up when we confess Christ for the hard things. We don't want discipline and we don't want suffering. So when those come, we just lose our minds. Like I'm afraid of it. We start questioning all the things that God has said. Now, obviously, we want to get to what the Bible has to say about fear. It has a lot to say about fear. Depending on what translation you pick, there is 109 references to the phrase or the thought, do not fear, be not afraid, fear not. 109. And they're all in the imperative form. Commandments to God's people. Don't. It is as serious as every other command God has given. Did you ever know that? Don't fear. I command you. Now, let me just confess something before we get in this kind of lost perspective. Everybody in here struggles with fear. I struggle with fear. There are times I cannot sleep because of fear. And every tough guy you're sitting next to, by the way, I don't care where they come from or what they've done, they're just, they're just posing because everyone has fear. And, and some, some of the people who pretend like they don't are the ones with the biggest fears because it's the way to cover. It's a way to hide. Everyone deals with fear. Fear is common to what it is to be a sinful person. But let me tell you really the ultimate source of fear and that is faithlessness. I'm not gonna be too hard on you. I'm just telling you like it is. When it all boils down, when God says to us, commands us not to fear, and every commandment to not be afraid is centered on the continual reminder of the ultimate reason why God, then when we are afraid, the only reason is because at that moment, I don't believe. For that brief second, I doubt whether he's gonna do that or be that way towards me. Faithlessness is what it is. Let me give you quickly, I'm gonna blast through these things. You, you can't follow me. I'll put them up on the screen, the text that we're gonna look at. I'm gonna give you eight biblical reasons to not be afraid. Here's the first one, because God has you and you're valuable to him. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 29 and 30, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore you are more valuable than many sparrows, many, many sparrows. Jesus is trying to emphasize to his disciples how extremely important you are to the father and his thoughts. God has you, you're valuable. Here's another reason why you not be afraid because man can't harm you. David said this in Psalm 56, 11, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? 
ultimately, what can he do? Nothing ultimately. He might hurt your flesh, but you have a father and have an eternal relationship that will never spoil or fade. Here's another reason, because God protects you. Again, David, Psalm 91, 14. This is God saying this now to his people, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. Because God supplies you, Philippians 4, 19, Paul says, and my God will supply every need, not some, but all need of yours according to his riches of glory in Christ Jesus. Every need. What's your need? That's that dream list, by the way. He supplies it all. Because God is always ready and watching. Again, David, Psalm 121, verse four, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's always on duty. Because God will help you. Now, now this, this one just is a great passage, Isaiah 41. Um, listen to the personal pronouns, God's mouth to your heart. How many times he refers to himself to guarantee the promise. Fear not, command, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Anybody confused on who's doing the helping here? God's got you. He will help you. Here's another one, because God will not leave you. Deuteronomy 31, verse six, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do you believe that, church? I'm gonna hold you to that. I'll give you the last reason, the most poignant reason why not to be afraid, because God wins. We learn this going through the wonderful, amazing conclusion of the gospel story, but when Paul is writing the narrative, like the best narrative I know of the gospel tale in Romans, he gets to chapter eight, and he just simply asks questions of the people of God. When they get Jesus in their mind, he says this, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how he will not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger? By the way, that's the list of losing the dream. Everything everyone's afraid of. And he goes on and says in verse 37, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, here comes the list, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What are you afraid of? Now, how many of those statements or passages did you hear for the very first time? Right? Those are the famous ones. They're the ones you already know. So what's the problem? Why the fear? They're so familiar to us and yet we still fall into fear. Now I want you to see Proverbs 3. Because what we're gonna do in Proverbs 3 is we're gonna do a do this and receive this experience from the father to his son, the wisest man who ever lived. In chapter 3, 
We're going to look at how to respond to that, those truths we just confessed, how to make it stick in our life. How can we actually know rest in craziness? How can we experience no fear in this, in this world? Well, Proverbs 3, if you just want a, a really good thought about this, there's two particular paragraphs that belong together. In fact, it's the second paragraph, verses 5 through 12, and the third paragraph, verses 21 through 27. There are actions that, that Solomon gives us in the first paragraph that are directly tied to the outcomes of the third paragraph. So there's something that's coming our way, and I'll just give you a sneak preview. It is called fearless living in that third paragraph. What we do in the second paragraph is directly connected to seeing that fearless life. Make sense? All right, let's unpack what we're supposed to do. These are the actions. Here's the first one, verses five and six. Pretty simple. Church, trust the Lord all the time. Here's what he says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. My father has taught me a lot of things in my life. Um, the, one of the reasons why I love to go into the garage and work on cars, because my dad taught me. He's taught me a lot of things and he obviously was a pastor. I've told you this before for years and years uh, I had a conversation with him on the phone the other day and I thought I'd apply perfectly to this point of trusting him all the time. Um, just so you know the story of my folks, they're living in an assisted care facility back in uh, Illinois. And my dad has had multiple strokes. His right side doesn't function anymore. He's had triple bypass and he's got everything. I mean, if you can have it, he can have it. And uh, he's clear of mind. My, my mom had a couple of severe strokes a couple of years ago. So she's alive, but she's not here. Okay, so his life consists of her living in a hospital part of this facility while he lives in a, a room like would be the size of a pantry. And he sleeps in a bed and his day he wakes up and he goes down and feeds my mom at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And he goes back to his room at bedtime. And that's his life. He just lives that way. And I, there's nothing to do. There's no way to get out of it. And so we just started talking the other day and we started talking about cars. We share the love of cars together. And he starts reflecting about all the cars he's had in his life. And he goes, oh, I remember back in 50 whatever, I had a Dodge and we were having this wonderful conversation. And then he started to connect all the cars he had and then the circumstances the family was in when we had the car, make sense? And uh, he was talking about a time where they were trying to move from South Carolina up to Wisconsin and had to move and he didn't have any money to move. And he just loaded up the car and started moving. I go, well, dad, this doesn't work. There's no, the math isn't right. You had no money. You couldn't afford it. What did you do? I would have never moved my feet. He said, we just believe God called us to go there. I said, well, how did you do it? I mean, you got to buy gas. Well, we stopped at the first gas station and I was checking the tires like guys did back in the day. And um, some guy never met, never knew, never met after that, showed up at the window, knocked on my wife's window and handed us just enough money to get home. Well, Dad, how often did that happen? He goes, it always happened. When we moved from, we lived in New Mexico for a while. We moved back to the Midwest. He said, we had to move eight of us. And then we had four cars. We didn't have enough money to move. And I said, well, didn't the, the mission who hired you, didn't they pay you to move? And he said, no. Back then, they didn't pay at all to do stuff like that. And I said, so you just decided to drive the family. And we were going to like stop and gallop and earn money. What were we going to do? And he said, no, we just believe God called us. I said, well, how did it work out? He said, well, I, had, I met a guy two days before we left. He invited me over to his house. He handed me an envelope with enough money to make the trip. I go, well, dad, all the time? He goes, all the time. So I'm doing the math quickly, and I'm thinking about his circumstance. Just brutal to me. I said, well, dad, do you reflect on that stuff whenever you consider getting up every day and feeding mom without her ever knowing who you are? Do you think about living in that little room and then reflecting back, well, he always 
deal with delivered? Do you have enough stored up faith to deal with every day? And he goes, oh, no. He said it so fast. It kind of shocked me. He said, no, 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 there's no way. You can't store faith. You have to get up and believe it every morning. And that's true. That's exactly what Solomon is saying to his son. Trust in the Lord with all your heart every minute of every day. The circumstances will change. But if you think you can have such a perspective on life and living that you never have to engage faith again, you're missing the point. Some of us are going to go in right next into our worst fears realized. The dreaded loss of dream. God is asking, do you believe me now? Do you want it now? Do you trust me as good now? You've lost your health. You've lost your home. You've lost your finances. Do you believe me now? David is, not David, Solomon is telling his son, listen, every day wake up and put on faith and lean not on your own understanding. The first thing is trust the Lord all the time. Here's the second thing we do. Verses seven and eight, admit your limp. He says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. There is not a single person here who's good enough, smart enough, strong enough, or supplied enough on our own. Solomon says, so be humble. Walk small and dependent. You probably have experienced this, but fear happens predominantly when we're living like we don't have a limp And when we discover we do, we freak. I didn't know I couldn't do. I didn't know I couldn't get there on my own. And now I have to depend, and so I'm afraid. Make sense? So church, how do we walk? We walk humbly. We admit that we have broken legs and we need a savior, amen? Let me give you the third thing. How do we rest? Live like you're cared for. Nine and 10, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Live like you're cared for. The only people who can truly honor God with their wealth and their possessions are people who don't find their strength in them. That's it. You could be the best giver on the planet, but if you, don't, if you find your strength in anything but the Lord, you can't obey this passage. To really honor God is to trust in his strength alone. And so Solomon says to his son, boy, here's what you do. Just honor God with what you have. Prove to him, prove to your own heart that you trust he cares more than you can do. Trust it all the time. So, so live like you're cared for. Question, do you live like you're cared for? Do you serve like you're cared for? Do you give like you're cared for? Like God really thinks of you as his child and he's watching out for all your needs question. Let me give you the last thing to do. Welcome God's correction, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. In other words, don't misread his discipline for lack of affection. I had a conversation this week about the job fathers have to do, And if I boil down the task, there's lots of specific tasks, but the general task is a father is a straightener. Fathers deal with the bents of their children's hearts. We're all broken in sin. We all are born with an inclination towards something crazy and rebellious, right? And so fathers have a role. Help straighten that up. Tie a cord to it and pull that life straight. 
to correct us. Well, here's what Solomon says to us, that every one of us have this inclination, this bent towards sin and the flesh. These are our issues, and this is where our fear comes from, okay? Church, the father is passionate about straightening things and specifically straightening the hearts of his children. Discipline is not the bad word. Discipline is the good word of how he corrects us to get us accurate and right. So just imagine when you're living your life as a, as a person and, and you're struggling with fears more than likely in this situation, the fear would be, I can't bear up under his discipline. I can't handle his correction. I thought I was right. I think I know what I'm doing. There's a thousand things that come into the sinful mind of a man. And here's what he tells his son. Do not, do not walk away from his correction. Welcome it. Welcome that correction because it's his love on display. Okay, now remember I said there was two paragraphs directly connected to each other. Here's action. Here's the result of the action, verses 21 through 27. Ready? This, if you want a sales pitch, here's the sales pitch. You want to walk free, here's why you walk free. He says in verse 21 and 22, because it's soul life, church. My son, do not lose sight of these things. And he's referring back to those actions he told him to take. Keep sound wisdom and discretion and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, will keep your soul alive. That sounds like the flip side to fear. Because if you were really actually trying to pen out uh, uh, what it feels like to be afraid, it's like death, isn't it? Fear controls us. Fear strips the soul trusting the Lord and humbly dependent on him, believing that he's more than just a little bit interested in us, is the description in scripture of life and living. Living with the concept of God's attention on me, his affections on me all the time, in spite of circumstances, is the biblical definition of living. And that's what he says. It'll be life to your soul, church. Let me give you the other reason why you should walk in, in fearlessness, doing these things that he suggested, because People free of fear take stable steps. Verse 23, and then you will walk on, the way, on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. In other words, strong decisions, confident in your actions. Fear does just the opposite. Fear cripples us. Never, never quite sure what we're doing. Never, never quite secure, always second guessing. I, you know, the scriptures are pretty clear about God's plans for us. His love for us is unbelievable. And some of us, God has plans for us that some of us are afraid to see. And so we don't move. We don't believe, we don't obey, we just hunker down and hold on to navigate our fear without a God in our life. That's how it feels. But the reality of it is, people who do these things, trust in the Lord, humble in their life, generous with their life, welcoming the Lord's discipline, confident decisions stable steps. Man, the world needs that. Let me give you the third thing of what rest looks like. People free of fear can relax and sleep great, all right? How practical is this? If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Again, Eugene Peterson says, you'll take afternoon naps without worry. You'll enjoy a good night's sleep. Amen. Okay, be honest. How much do your fears and worries keep you up at night? How many times, how many holidays or vacations has worry and fear messed up? 
See, here's, here's what the scripture says about God's people. We have peace. Anxious, striving, stressful. That's the opposite of the gospel in our hearts. As sinners who are saved by the wonderful grace of God, trusting him and everything all the time, that knowing he meets my needs and he's always good and he's always gonna be committed to growing my heart, it keeps me from pacing the floor at night wondering if I'm gonna be okay. There's a narrative bigger than my circumstance and it's going on all the time. He's into me. He's into you. He's watching. He's specific. Nothing gets to you. You are invincible with him in your life. Nobody can touch one hair of your head or take one second of your life until he says time. He's got us. One last thought or a couple more thoughts. Verse 25, we don't panic in sudden trouble. Do not, again, command, be afraid of sudden terror or the, of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. The word ruin is a better word named like storm. So read it this way. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the storm of the wicked when it comes. Talk about a narrative that describes our world. The storm of the wicked. It's out of control. We're gonna get run over, right? That's how we feel sometimes. We need to hear this. It seems like every day there's another report of sudden disaster, right? There's a world of tensions out there, a threat of nuclear war. There's falling leaders and failing culture. There's tragedy and crisis. It seems like every week I pray for some other thing that happens in our, in our world. God's people don't sit in indifference to this stuff. It moves our heart. It's just that we navigate it with peace. I don't get it, God. I don't understand it all. I don't lean on what I understand about those, those situations. As soon as the next crazy thing happens in our world, in my life, I remind myself that God is not confused. I tell myself that he is not upset or disappointed. He's not lost control and he isn't hiding his eyes. Our God is sovereign. He knows what he's doing and he loves his people. That's what I have to tell myself. He doesn't respond to circumstances like you and I do. He doesn't learn about the next tragedy. He knows it's all happening. He causes or allows all things. So church... We have to rest in that. Don't panic in sudden trouble. God is always working his sovereign and good plan, so don't flinch. That's the command. One last thought. Verse 26. What does rest look like? It looks like courage in the Lord. Verse 26 says, for the Lord will be your confidence, courage, and will keep your foot from being caught. Two thoughts come to my mind when I read this passage is to remind myself, courage in what? Just, just to say the obvious. Courage is not in changed circumstances. It's not that he's gonna take your upside down world and go, I'm gonna make it right for you right now. It's courage in him. In spite of the confusion, in spite of the trouble, in spite of the suffering, my courage is in him. And the second thing that stands out to me is that he has promised to be with us. In fact, the NIV translates this passage this way, the Lord will be at our side. That's where courage comes from. How close is the Lord? How close is he to you, church? He's closer than you could possibly fathom. In every moment of every day, your worst, most regrettable things, your highest moments of your life, he's with you. He's with us right now. He never leaves us. He's that close to us. The one 
who overcame fear, the one who overcame everything I'm afraid of, Satan, sin, and death, all the things that I struggle with, like this world and conflict and broken dreams and broken desires, he's with us. Do you believe that? All I'm telling you is like if you, if you miss that, the only thing left you have is fear. Long, long time ago, 1933, Germany was coming apart at the seams for the second time. They had just come out of a bad war. They were on their way to another one. They were in depression and poverty. The government was tipping over. There was a guy named Hitler hanging out in the wings, waiting to take some kind of position of leadership. The country was really falling apart. There was a theologian pastor named Diedrich Bonhoeffer who was ministering at the time. Now, to me, it almost reads like he's in our culture. Like, everything's broken. Every time I hear something, there's another tragedy or rumor of something going wrong. And so Diedrich, preaching to his church, preached a sermon entitled Overcoming Fear. I want to read his quote and then pray and we'll be done. Have you ever seen someone in the grip of fear? It's dreadful in a child, but even more dreadful in an adult. The staring eyes, the shivering like an animal, the pleading attempt to defend oneself. Fear takes away a person's humanity. This is not what the creature made by God looks like. This person belongs to the devil, this enslaved, broken-down, sick creature. But the human being doesn't have to be afraid. We should not be afraid. That's what makes humans different from all other creatures. In the midst of every situation where there's no way out, where there's nothing very clear, where we're the reason for the fault, we know that there's hope, and hope has a name. Name's Jesus. We name the name of the one who makes the evil inside us recoil, who makes fear and anxiety itself tremble with fear and puts them to flight. We name the one who overcame fear and led it captive in the victor procession, who nailed it to the cross and committed it to oblivion. We name the one who is the shout of victory of humankind redeemed from the fear of death, Jesus Christ, the crucified and living one. He alone is Lord over fear and knows him as its master. He gives way to him alone. So look to Christ when you are afraid. Think of Christ. Keep him before your eyes. Call upon Christ and pray to him. Believe that he is with you now, helping you. Then fear will grow pale and fade away and you'll be free through your faith in the strong and living Savior, Jesus Christ. 1933. Fresh words, right? Let's pray for the Spirit's help. God in heaven, You have done everything to free us from, from sin. And yet the remnants, um, these reflections still hang on from time to time. And one of them is fear. God, sink the truth of your affections for your people deep in our hearts so that when circumstances that you're sovereign over don't go as we think they should, our reaction would be peace. God, we confess that fear is, is sin. We confess that it is our struggle. We confess that we put our hope in more things than we could possibly, possibly admit at this moment. So help us walk now in true faith, believing that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our life and living and our faith. We give him all glory. We pray it in his name. Amen.